On October 11th, 2020, we began working our way through the book of Luke. And we've taken some time away in the summers to work our way systematically, little by little, through the Psalms. We've taken some time away at other times to look at some small little preaching series. But our mainstay for the last three plus years has been here in the book of Luke. And so this morning, in this, the 100th sermon in our Luke series, I want to draw our time in this book to a close by looking at a couple of things. First, by the, looking at the glorious message of Christ's birth. And we would be remiss if we didn't spend some time this morning looking at the good news of great joy. But then I want us to turn and I want us to take what we learned there And what we've learned over the last three plus years, and I want us to go back to the very beginning of Luke, to this section that Jessica read for us a moment ago, and I want us to answer the question, how does all that we have seen in this book help us to have certainty? How does it help fulfill Luke's primary thesis, which is that we we might have confidence in the things that we have been taught, the things that we have heard. So, although I had Jessica read Luke chapter 1, I want us to first begin here in Luke chapter 2, which might mean turning your page to the right, maybe a page or two in your Bible. And we're going to pick up here in Luke chapter 2. Luke has just narrated the birth of Jesus, and now the camera fades on Bethlehem at least on the stable in Bethlehem. And the camera picks up just outside Bethlehem to the hillside surrounding that region. Let's look at verse 8 of Luke chapter 2. The word of the Lord says, And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, And the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with fear. The angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths, lying in a manger. Suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Well, this is perhaps one of the most famous passages in all of Scripture. In fact, this time of the year when the church around the world is celebrating the birth of Jesus, it's no surprise that we would turn to a passage like this. There's lots of things we could say about these verses that I just read, but what I want us to focus in on this morning is the very message that's delivered by the angels. As one pastor has written, to these lowly men, the angel gives the highest theology. 
at the center of this angelic message is the reality that this is good news. This is a good news message. And this is a good news message that is designed to incite or inspire or provoke great joy. Just look at verse 10 where we get to the central core or at least the beginning of the core of the angelic message. The angel said to them, fear not for behold I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. This is good news. In fact, it's no accident that this is what Luke would name his account, good news. Another name for good news is gospel. It's what the word gospel means. It's the good news. And this is the good news of great joy that a Savior has been born, that God in the flesh has come into our world. In fact, 700 years earlier, God would speak through the prophet Isaiah And Isaiah would write, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted and proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. And in fact, when Jesus began his earthly ministry in Luke chapter 4, Jesus goes into the synagogue and he takes the scroll of the prophet Isaiah and he opens the scroll to Isaiah chapter 61 and he reads these very words. As the opening words of his public ministry, he announces that he has come as the bearer or as the means by which good news is proclaimed. Like being hopelessly lost in the woods only to hear the faint calls of a park ranger approaching. Or to be lost in an unfamiliar town at night with a dead cell phone only to see the familiar face of a friend, the message of the gospel is not only good, it's a message that inspires joy. And it inspires excitement. I mean, what could be more joyous than hearing that into our struggle for survival and into our struggle for meaning and happiness and eternal well-being The hope of the world has come. And he's not only come, but he's drawn near. Emmanuel, God with us. Well, if you're familiar with CCF, if you're a part of our church regularly, you just humor me one last time in this series in Luke. No sermon would be complete without a quote from our friend J.C. Ryle, the 19th century British pastor who put it this way, the spiritual darkness which had covered the earth for 4,000 years was about to be rolled away. The way to pardon and peace with God was about to be thrown open to all mankind. The head of Satan was about to be bruised. Liberty was about to be proclaimed to the captives recovery of sight to the blind. The mighty truth was about to be proclaimed that God could be just and yet for Christ's sake justify the ungodly. And salvation was no longer to be seen through types and figures, but openly and face to face. The knowledge 
of God was no longer to be confined to Jews, but to be offered to the whole Gentile world. The days of heathenism were numbered. The first stone of God's kingdom was about to be set up. If this was not good tidings, there never were tidings that deserve the name. This is good news of great joy. But unlike purported good news that sometimes in our world is actually not good news or isn't actually news or isn't good news for everyone, only some people, only those who qualify, only those who meet the standard, this is not just the possibility of good news for some. This is the glorious reality of good news. Just look again at verse 10. The angel said to them, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be. The angel did not say, I bring you good news of great joy that may be, or that could be, or even that might be. God directed this messenger to communicate to these shepherds on the hills outside Bethlehem that this was good news of great joy that will be. In fact, later, the Apostle Paul would write to the church in Ephesus. And in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11, he reveals to us that that the God who purposed and designed the cosmos in all of its inconceivable detail is the same God who works some things according to the counsel of his will, right? No. It's who works most things according to the counsel. No. Who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Good news of great joy, that will be because God works all things according to the counsel of his will. Nothing stops the plan of God. Nothing prevents the will of God from succeeding. You see, our plans, our schedules change. They change based on what time we went to bed the night before or the traffic that we encounter or how our kids are feeling. Like Our plans can unravel at the slightest tug of illness or unemployment or accident or even by the unexpected change in the weather. But not God. What God wishes, He wills. And what He wills, He plans. And what He plans, He accomplishes. All the time. Every single time. This is good news of great joy that will be. We can count on it. It will be. But it will be what? It's good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Now, I've mentioned this before several different times, typically at Christmas time, so just humor me again for a moment because this is really, really important. And that is the definite article, the, in that verse. Good news of great joy that will be for all the people, which means we ought to stop and ask, who are the people that this is good news of great joy for? Because this is not just good news of great joy for all people, but all the people. 
This good news of great joy is not good news to those who don't believe it. The message of Jesus Christ and his birth and his life and his death and resurrection is not good news for those who reject it. It's not good news for those who fail to repent and trust in this holy son of God. And a huge number of people around the world celebrate Christmas and sing about baby Jesus and yet tragically far fewer will actually experience this eternal joy in their heart and soul. And they will not experience eternal joy when they stand before God one day. And like the shepherds, then we have a responsibility to spread this good news of great joy to all people because all people need to repent and turn and trust and believe in this Savior born in Bethlehem who has come to redeem and to save and to justify and to restore us to the Father. What does this mean then for the message of Christmas, this good news that will be for all the people? Well, it means that whatever goodness there is and whatever joy that comes from the birth and the life of Jesus into our world, it means that God will assure that his plan and his purpose for Jesus Christ will be precisely carried out as planned. Which means that we can be assured that God's purpose is to save and to restore a people to himself through Jesus Christ will never fail. And think about the comfort that this brings. That just as God provided his son at the perfect time, at the right time, and that as the son perfectly fulfilled the plan of the father to live without sin and to willingly go to the cross and to die as a substitute, and just as the father rose, raised his son from the dead on the third day, and just as the Son ascended back to the Father, and just as the Son is now seated at the right hand of the Father, and just as the Father and the Son have sent the Spirit to live inside all those who believe, we can be certain and we can be comforted that God's plans will come to fruition just as He has directed. We can take comfort in the fact that God will save and redeem and restore all those who believe, just as he's promised. Well, let's continue. Look at verse 11. For unto you, this is the message, the heart of the message. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. For unto you. Like, what a surprise it must have been to these shepherds that this divine baby would be born to the shepherds. I don't know how often you've thought about that, how often you've, you've thought about that word there, to, T-O, translated in our English. But that word there is important. Unto you, this child is born. And Tara and I have, have been blessed with the birth of children, children who were born to us. And we are the recipients of these precious gifts but that's exactly what this divine message is proclaiming. God is telling these poor shepherds that this precious gift of Jesus is born to you. 
Like the words to you are like a huge tag on a, on a beautifully wrapped gift that says to and from. This is to the shepherds. This is to all those who will believe from God. And this is where the good news of great joy takes on personal significance. As Philip Ryken writes, the angel was doing something more than telling the shepherds what happened. The angel was also telling them why it mattered. This is not just a child who was born. This is not even just the Savior Christ the Lord. But this Savior Christ the Lord has come to you, for you. You see, the meaning of Jesus is not found just in his general work as a teacher, as a miracle worker, as a preacher. The meaning of Jesus is found in his personal saving work. You see, God did not send Jesus to simply, simply be a collective leader. Like, yes, Jesus Christ is the head of the church. He is the head and the, the leader and the ruler of his people, of his church. Yes, God also sent Jesus to be a personal savior first. So if there's ever any doubt in your heart about the interests of a transcendent God in the minute details of your life, Jesus' birth removes all doubt. After all, just as we sang this morning, Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. If you're here last night, as Pastor Taylor read to the kids, you remember maybe the last lines of that section from the Jesus Storybook Bible, Emmanuel had come, the author says, because of course he had. Again, verse 11, for unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Now, if we're tracking with what the shepherds have experienced, they're watching their sheep, <clears throat> tending their sheep, minding their own business one night, and all of a sudden, an angel of God appears to them, and the glory of God shines around them, and depending on your translation of the Bible, or if you've recently watched the Peanuts, you know that they were either sore afraid, according to Linus and the KJV, or they were very afraid, or they were terrified, again, or they were filled with fear, if you have the ESV. And the angel then says, don't be afraid because I'm about to give you good news of great joy. And this good news of great joy will impact all the people. It, will, it has meaning for all the people. And then the angel begins to divulge what this good news of great joy is. By telling them that there is a baby who is born to them. And to all who believe. And that this baby is born in the city of David. And that this baby is the Savior and is the Christ and is the Lord. And so this angel gives these shepherds four indications about how they might find and recognize and know who this child is. And keep in mind, Bethlehem is not a huge city. Bethlehem is a tiny village. And so these instructions were very clear. God, through his angelic messenger, was wanting these shepherds to know exactly where they might find this baby and exactly who they ought to be looking for. Four indicators. This baby was born in the city of David, who is the Savior, who is the Christ, who is the Lord. 
Let's just briefly walk through those four clues to see what they mean. First of all, notice Jesus is born in the city of David, which is significant. Bethlehem is the city where King David was born. Yes, the King David who who defeated the bears and who defeated the giant and who ended up becoming the king of Israel. In fact, the deliverer, the Messiah to come, it was promised throughout the Old Testament, would be one who would be born in the city of David. That's significant. Jesus comes then and fulfills the prophecies about the Savior the Messiah born in Bethlehem. But secondly, we have this clue that this, or this title we could even say, that the one baby who would be born would be the Savior. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior. Now, the fact that the angel refers to this baby as a Savior is a pretty clear indication that someone is in need of saving. And this not only refers to physical deliverance, but it refers also to spiritual deliverance. In fact, you might remember later on in the book of Luke, in Luke chapter 19, verse 10, Jesus said that he has come to seek and to save, yeah, you know it, that which was lost. And Jesus came to save people. What did he come to save us from? He came to save us from sin, from the penalty of sin. He came to save us from the power of Satan. And he came to save us from the righteous wrath of God. Now the Bible is clear that we have all sinned. That we have all rebelled against our maker. That we have failed to honor God as God. The Bible is also clear that the consequences of our sin mean that we not only need salvation from death and from our own depravity, the consequences of our sin, but we ultimately and most fundamentally need salvation from the wrath of the Creator God. The wrath which is rightly and fairly and justly directed towards those who, according to Romans 1, suppress the truth about God in our unrighteousness fail to honor God as God. But this is precisely, friends, what Jesus came to reverse and to eliminate and to save us from, which is why he is, in fact, the Savior. I love the way Paul would write it when he he wrote to the Romans in Romans chapter 5. He says, for while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Which sounds a lot like something a savior would do. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He is the savior. The third title that the angel uses for this baby is the title, the Christ which could be translated the Messiah, or it really literally means the anointed one. And if you know much of the Old Testament or even ancient history, you know that throughout the Old Testament, prophets and kings were oftentimes anointed. 
It was a way to recognize the fact that God had, had blessed and provided this prophet or this king to speak to his people or to lead his people or to do something significant to communicate to his people. And for generations, the Jews had been expecting the anointed one the Messiah who would come, who would deliver the people of God, who would save and rescue a people for God's glory. And this is exactly what Christ has come to do. He has come to be Christ, the anointed one, to not only speak for God, but to speak as God because he is God. The last title the angel uses here is Lord And it's a term of honor that points not only to Jesus' deity, the fact that he is God, but it also points to Jesus' power and his authority. In other words, this baby born in Bethlehem isn't just the rescuer. He is himself the great king. I love the way Colossians speaks of this in Colossians chapter 1, verse 13 and 14, when talking about the way God works through Jesus for our salvation. The apostle Paul writes and says, he, Jesus, has delivered us from the domain of darkness. Delivered us from the domain of darkness. Don't you love that? I mean, that's like Tolkien-esque, even before Tolkien. Delivered us from the domain of of darkness, and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son, in him or in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the Lord. He is the king who rescues and who redeems and who redeems and wins the victory to buy back and purchase back a people for himself, for his glory, for his purposes, for his honor. And these are, this is the first time in human history where these four titles are put together to refer to one specific person. In fact, up until now, leaders and individuals, some of them have, had symbolized maybe parts of a title or half of a title, but in Jesus, they come together fully because in the city of David was born a savior, the Christ, the Lord. Verse 12, and this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. This will be a sign for you. Have you ever stopped to consider that had the angels not given these instructions to the shepherds, the shepherds never would have found Jesus? Had God not given these shepherds special insight, the shepherds would have continued throughout their night watching over their flocks and the sun would have risen and a new day would have begun and they would have carried on and gone about their work like every day before. No idea, with no idea at all that they were missing out on the most monumental event in human history, the arrival of Jesus, the life of Jesus. 
Had God not revealed the good news of great joy to the shepherds, they would never have come to Christ. How kind of our Lord to give a sign like this. And signs are for directing. They lead us to something. In this case, the sign that was that they were to look for a specific baby wearing specific clothes in a specific location. You will find the baby wrapped in swaddling cloths, lying in, of all places, a manger, which may have been the biggest clue because that would not have been an obvious place for a baby to be laid. I mean, how counterintuitive that the baby born with Davidic royal roots, the Savior, the Messiah, the Lord, would be lying in a farm animal's feeding container. How counterintuitive. And how counterintuitive as well that our access into eternal life does not come through extensive education. That our access into eternal life does not come through flawless moral character or devout religiosity, but rather our access into eternal life comes through childlike faith in the crucified and risen Jesus. Later, Jesus would clarify for Peter as he does for all of us, that any acknowledgement that we have of Jesus' true identity, any heartfelt, meaningful acknowledgement that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Savior, the Lord, any acknowledgement of that does not come from inside of us. It doesn't come because we just got enough education or we're just brilliant enough to connect all the dots, or just because we were flawless enough in our character, or we were devout enough in our practice of religion, but rather it comes from God who gifts us that knowledge. Which is what we saw last week and the week before. God opening blind eyes, opening the eyes of hearts to be able to see, ah, There is a God who rules and reigns. And I truly have sinned. I've failed to honor that God as God. And Jesus really did come to redeem and to rescue me and to bring me back to the Father. And we turn by faith and we trust and we believe and we repent. And we find forgiveness full and free and we find cleansing and justification. We find adoption. This is not truth that comes from within us. It's truth that comes from outside that God gives to us through his word. Riken again writes, this is how God saves us, not by simply sending Jesus to be our savior, but also by preaching to us the gospel so that we can believe in his saving work. That God doesn't just do things, he also says things. And we need to know what he says so that we can believe in what he has done. Which is an awful lot like saying faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. Now, let's take all of this that we've seen here in Luke chapter 2 and let's take this back and connect it to the broader whole all the way back one chapter before in Luke chapter 1. Because you'll remember that Luke begins writing, and he begins by laying out his 
thesis or his purpose. And his purpose is that we might have certainty concerning the things that we have been taught. He writes in chapter 1, verse 1, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. Certainty. Certainty is a noun that means a firm conviction that something is the case. It can also mean the quality of being reliably true. So let me ask, have you ever questioned your faith? Have you ever doubted the truths of Christianity? Have you ever wondered if Jesus actually did come into our world? If he actually did die on the cross for our sins? If his death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead actually have, have bearing on our lives? Are they actually connected to life 2,000 years later? Maybe a better question to ask instead of have you ever doubted would be when was the last time you doubted? Because we have all asked questions like that. We all think questions like that from time to time. And in fact, often, especially when life gets hard, these kinds of questions tend to come up more often than not. And so it would seem like certainty in the Christian faith, is an impossible goal. And yet this is precisely why Luke writes this book. And we could add there, this is precisely why the Holy Spirit of God, God the Holy Spirit, leads and inspires Luke to write. It's why he's carried along as he writes, so that we might have certainty. So Luke writes... His account of Jesus' life and ministry and death and resurrection is written for the expressed purpose of giving us certainty so that we would know that the things that we have been taught are true and worth building our lives upon. And so this series in Luke for the last three plus years has been an invitation from God's word to be reassured, to be comforted, to be strengthened by the certainty of the foundation on which our Christian faith rests, even in the face of doubts, even in seasons of questions, even in certainty, as we live in an uncertain world. In fact, when we began this series back in 2020, I said then these words, my prayer for our church as we walk through this book is that our certainty in the gospel of Jesus Christ would grow and that this certainty would comfort us in our daily lives and embolden us more, to more intentionally speak this gospel to those who have never heard. And we've seen in all kinds of examples, even in our church family in the last three years, how God has given 
greater and greater and greater certainty. Some of you have encountered significant trials and tragedies in the last three plus years. And you would testify to the fact and have testified to the fact that God is faithful. And he gives certainty and he gives rest and and we can be confident as we stand on him. And I'm confident that as the Lord has done it, he will continue to give us certainty because this is why the Holy Spirit inspired this book so that every time we continue to go back to all of Scripture, not just Luke, but all of Scripture, our certainty would grow, certainty that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, that he really entered our world in Bethlehem, certainty that he truly lived without sin and died on the cross in the place of all who believe, certainty that God raised him from the dead, that all who trust in him might be reconciled to him. And maybe perhaps the certainty that's needed the most in our world today isn't a certainty that Jesus was a historical person or that Jesus actually historically died or even historically rose from the dead. Any historian worth their weight in salt, even if they are an atheist, will acknowledge that there was a historical Jesus who really lived and that there is historical record that he died and came back to life. But maybe the greatest certainty that's needed is that he's worth it. Because so often our rejection of Jesus, our suppression of the truth, according to Romans chapter 1, isn't because we lack scientific empirical evidence. It's because we love our sin. We love the darkness more than the light. We don't know if it's worth it. Letting go of the things, the sins, the control the kingship that we want for our own lives to follow our triune God. So I pray that as we worked our way through Luke and as we will continue week by week working our way through the word of God until Jesus comes back, as you open God's word daily, he would continue to provide certainty. Not only certainty in the truths of the, of the essentials of the gospel, but certainty that he is worthy, that he is worth it. There's one more thing to remind you of this morning, and I reminded you of this three years and two months and 11 days ago, that you probably forgot, (laughs) at least a few of you. That is that this word certainty in verse 4 of chapter 1 is also sometimes translated in the Bible as safety. In fact, in Acts chapter 5, verse 23, and a couple of different times in 1 Thessalonians, we see the same Greek word for certainty translated safety. Now think about that. Luke's account, the truthfulness and the worthwhileness, worthwhileness of the gospel of Jesus Christ gives us not only certainty, it gives us safety. Safety as we trust on the Jesus who is open to us in these pages. That we might turn from our unbelief and believe, yes, Jesus is the Son of God who did suffer and die in my place for my sin. 
And he's worth it. And he's worthy. You see, our faith, friends, is not yet by sight. Which means there's always room for doubt. Because we walk by faith and not by sight. But one day, there will be no longer, there will no longer be a need for a book like this to provide certainty or safety because our faith will be sight. And so until then, we open the word of God and we read and we think and we ask questions and we walk by faith. Even when all of our questions aren't answered. Even when we face doubts and trials and suffering from time to time. Even when we, we seek to trust and believe even with imperfect certainty. Friends, we can rest in safety because God is faithful to his word and he is faithful to his people. And he protects and preserves his own. And even when we feel like our faith may fail, he will hold us fast. To borrow the lyrics of another song, even when the winds of doubt blow through us and our sails have all been torn, this is our ballast of assurance. See his love forever proved. We can hold fast with certainty to the anchor of God, knowing he will never, ever be removed. And this is truly the good news of the greatest joy. And so we come this time of year and we gather together and we call to one another, come, all you who are faithful, let's come and let's be joyful and let's be triumphant because of this good news of great joy. Let's come and behold this one born in Bethlehem, born the king of angels. Oh, come. Let us adore him. Would you stand with me? Father, on this Christmas Sunday morning, this last sermon from this series through your word, through the book of Luke, I pray that you would impress upon our hearts once again the certainty that we can find in you. Which doesn't mean the absence of all question, but it means we can be confident that you are faithful and sure and that you are worth it and worthy. We can be confident that you who began a good work in us will be faithful to complete it. God, for the one in the room today or watching online who has yet to turn and trust and believe wholeheartedly, I pray, God, that you would open their eyes even this morning, the eyes of their heart, that they would trust and believe, surrender to you today. And for those of us trusting and believing and surrendering, I pray, God, that you would give us even greater joy as we look ahead to that day to come when Jesus will return, will come to earth a second time, not as a baby, but as a, as a reigning king. So Father, we now lift up our voices in song. We come this day 
to adore Christ, our Lord, in whose name we pray. Amen.